Welcome to Vibrant Life Allies, the podcast that introduces you to coaches, experts, and entrepreneurs who can help you live life more vibrantly. Today, I had a fabulous interview with a coach who works with healthcare business owners to help them grow and gain patience and make profits. His name is James, and it was a fascinating interview for me. I really enjoyed listening to him and his thoughts and experiences with anxiety and chronic pain. We talked about business, you know, making a profit and having to market and the importance of that, no matter how amazing you are at what you do you still have to market. So there were just so many really great points that came up. I I can't even begin to break them down for you. You're going to have to listen to this one for yourself and share with me in the comments or send me an email about your takeaways because I really enjoyed it. So enjoy it and get out there and live more vibrantly. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Vibrant Life Allies. Today, I am here with James, and I'm very excited to learn more about how he helps people live more vibrantly. James, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi. So I'm uh, James. Obviously, I'm, I'm based out of Auckland, New Zealand. You can probably tell with my accent. And other than being a husband, father of a couple kids and chiropractor or health professional by trade, I work with health professionals to grow their businesses. The biggest struggle that I face and hence why I do what I do was that you can be amazing at what you do. You can help a lot of people, but if you suck at growing a business, you're not going to be able to do that for very long, or you're not going to be able to help many people. And I'm here now because uh, I figured some stuff out and realized that I really enjoy the coaching aspect. And like we were talking pre-show, my first sort of coaching and, and things like that started with working with people who had anxiety and chronic pain in my clinic because we made a method that's not standard chiropractic to work with that sort of person. And, and I realized that I really enjoyed it. I was good at it. And so that's how I got to where I am now, but in the business space and uh, I'm loving it. My obsession at the moment, uh, I got kids, so I'm not really doing much else. And so it's just business and uh, family at the moment. And that's quite a lot. So you're doing plenty. I think that that's very interesting what you said, that it doesn't matter you know, how amazing you are, what you do, if you're struggling with the business aspect, then it's not going to work out. What are some of the, the main things that people struggle with when they're trying to take something that they're good at or passionate about and make a business? I think that what we don't consider enough is that the only way to get a skill in front of people is to be able to market it. If I'm trying to convince my friend to go to the movies with me, I'm putting on a marketing and sales campaign essentially to, to say, hey, this movie is going to be cool. Look at the pictures of it. We should go. And if he says, oh, I'm busy, I'll say, I'll buy you popcorn. Like you're throwing in these things to try and get them to come with you. And I think that when we understand that I have something that I want to help people with, I have to be able to convince them to do it. Because if people knew what to do and were doing it, we wouldn't have so many problems in the world. Think about, I'm a health professional, think about health problems. If people knew, then they'd be doing it. And if they know and are not doing it, they need coaching more than ever. Exercise is a great example of that. We all know we should, but the reason that we do is because of great marketing and great sales. Why do you join a gym and not just run to the gym and then run home again? (laughs) Because you feel like you need the gym and that's marketing and sales, but it actually gets us to go and do it because prior to that, like 50 years ago, I don't know when gyms came around, that wasn't really a thing. You know what I mean? So somebody had to market that to get us to do it, which ironically helped us. Now, not all marketing and sales is good, right? If you're selling stuff that people don't need. But if you think about the business aspect, 
our job is to get our stuff in people's hands. And if we can't, then we can't really help people. And you, it's not enough to rely on just being good. A lot of people think it's this collective delusion that if you are just good at what you do, then the people will come. Just do a good job and people will come and see you. And sure, a couple, a handful, your mum, dad, some friends. And if you wait 20 years, maybe you'll have some clients. But if you're actually driven by impacting people, then wouldn't it make sense to go and do stuff that gets you in front of more people and allows you to impact more people and, and that kind of thing. And so for me, it's like the whole purpose of a business is to make money and it's to make money by helping people. If I'm selling t-shirts, I'm trying to provide some value, which you know you could say is helping people. He doesn't have a t-shirt, I'm going to sell him one. Or he wants to look a certain way or feel a certain way, I'm going to sell him a t-shirt. If I'm selling a beverage, a service, it's sell something that helps people and make money because of it. So if you're not making money, then your business is going to die and then your dreams are going to die with it and you're not going to be able to help anybody and you're going to have to go and get a job. And a job's great, but a job is working for someone else's business. So it's still business. And so it comes back to this thing for me, which I'm obsessed about at the moment, is like our business has to make money so that it can keep helping people. And the mission of the business is to make money and your mission within the business is to help people, but they have to go together. Like even charities need money. It might not be for profit. All that means, I could be wrong on this, but all that means is any profit I make or any money I generate, I should say, I'm then just investing in the action of the entity, right? Not-for-profit means take any money and instead of putting it in my pocket, I'm going to reinvest it into better infrastructure and better marketing. And Like the big charities, they market and sell like crazy. You walk down the street and they're trying to sell you on charities all the time. Right. Because that's the nature of it. You need a resource. And we are, sure, you know, a lot of us are for profit, which I think is perfectly fine. But fundamentally, we have to understand that concept. If we want to, if we truly are driven by helping people, then we have to understand that the nature of our business is to help people. And therefore, we need to market and sell and be good at it and, and all that kind of stuff. But not just say, well, if I'm good at what I do, I'm going to be able to grow a business because that's just not true at all. Right. Apple was an Apple because they were just had nice phones. There's a lot of companies with nice phones. Right. And I think that it also feeds into the helping people. You're like, I'm good at this and it helps people. So people are just going to want it. But as a coach myself, that is not true. <laughs> How often does somebody clearly need it, but they're not actually taking any action with you? Like how frustrating it is it for you? And, and I assume you have this, right? Like we all have this. We're talking to somebody who we're like, man, they're amazing fit. I'm going to change this person's life. And then they don't take action with you. And you're asking them, you're trying to figure out why. And they've got all these weird objections that make no sense. And they're just basically full of limiting beliefs about their ability to take action on your thing. And you're looking at them like, but I'm, I've just given you the roadmap. I've shown how it works. I know I can help you. I know you know I can help people. You've seen it. Like, why are you not taking action? Somebody could be, it's like somebody dehydrating to death on the side of the road. And you're like, hey, I've got some water. And they're like, nah. And I'm like, what do you mean? I've got water and, and you're dehydrating and you're going to die. Yeah, but I don't know if that's the right water for me. I don't know if it's going to work for me. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's water and you're dehydrated. It can feel like that to us, but they still don't take the action. And so that's where the business sort of stuff matters so much. Obviously, extreme example, but you get my point. It's like, we can know something, but if no one knows we exist and we can't effectively communicate what we do and how it's going to matter to that person, like I can have the cure 
But if you don't understand why it's the cure, you don't understand how it's going to save, solve problems for you, produce results, then you're not going to buy into it. You're not going to, to take it. And even if you do buy it, you're not going to do it. And ultimately, that's the game of coaching. Get them to say yes, then get them to do it and continue to do it so they have benefit long-term, uh, not just short-term. And that is the cycle of business. That's marketing, it's sales, it's the whole thing. Absolutely. And, and that's true. That is, that is a, a whole group of skills that you have to have, or it doesn't matter how good you are at coaching, for example, you're not going to be able to get them to say yes. Yeah. I work in healthcare. People who have heart disease or chronic pain or, or whatever, they're struggling and suffering, even though there are amazing services everywhere. And a quick Google search would probably find you somebody. And there's probably amazing people right next door to you, but you don't know they exist. And you don't realize how much they're going to change your life because they're not marketing effectively. They're just waiting for referrals. But if you don't know anybody who knows that person, then you'll never get it. And so you're left suffering because that person didn't go out there and market and sell and get their service out and do the business side of things. And that for me as a health professional, that was really self-evident when I was struggling, but even more so now when I'm working with so many people, it's like they make such great changes, but they're limited in their ability to impact because they can't get their message out there effectively, which is why I'm obsessed with how can I show them the stuff that's working. Like most of us, even as coaches, we are a practitioner at heart. We love what we do and we love doing it. Otherwise, we would be doing the business stuff really well. And I think that we need to accept that, hey, I'm really good at A, but I need to know B. I was good at A and can have to be good at B as well, but I prefer B. That's why I coach B and I'm not coaching the thing. I'm coaching growing of the thing because that's where my passion is. But most of us, we fall into business because we're practitioners. We're not entrepreneurs. We're not about the business life. We love helping people. But the irony is that we need to learn those skills if we genuinely want to get our message out there and help more people because they just go hand in hand. Yeah. I thought, <laughs> sorry to cut you off, thought I'd add that little tidbit. Oh, no, that was great. Do you find that with the type of people that you're working with, especially that there is difficulty in the mindset of wanting to help people and feeling like I have to sell to people, like that, that people who want to help struggle maybe with sales? Yeah, I, I think the only reason we struggle with sales is because we think we're selling. If I'm trying to sell you like a, a widget, something that doesn't help you, provides no impact, then I'm selling. If you don't need a new phone or you don't even need a phone and I'm trying to get you to buy a phone, that's selling. If you're dying on the side of the road and I have a glass of water, that's not selling. That's just providing you what you need. I think the connotation we have with selling is negative is because we all have limiting beliefs from our parents and grandparents and things like that because someone decided that selling was bad even though we sell every single day. Like Not to get weird about it, but if you want to have some fun with your spouse, so to speak, you have to sell them on it. You wear nice clothes and you take them out to dinner and you talk certain ways to them. Like That's selling. If you want to get your kids to wear pants, eat dinner, that's selling. Convincing your friend to do something. The mere fact of any level of convincing is selling. And I think that the sooner we accept that it's not a dirty word, and I think that it's dirty, so to speak, if you are getting somebody to do something that will not benefit them. Not Notice I didn't say that, that they do not want. I think that we are, I think that if we have something that will help that person or by extension, their family, then it's our duty to push that person a little bit because sometimes we don't take action on things even though it's good for us because we have weird limiting beliefs. So the moment somebody has an objection, for example, that's not when you stop. Okay, cool. 
I'm now selling if I try and handle that objection. So I'm going to just not. I don't believe in that because again, most of us, if we knew what to do, we'd be doing it, wouldn't we? Otherwise, we're crazy. So there's something in their head stopping them from doing the thing that they need. A person's got heart disease but doesn't want to exercise. If they die, they're leaving their family without a father or a mother. There's going to be suffering. That kid's going to grow up without a parent. My duty as a health professional is to sell this person on why they should maybe take care of their health, even for their family's sake, beyond their own. So you've got, if it's going to help them, then I believe that you have the duty to, to sell and push them a little bit. If they don't want it, that's fine, but you need to make it clear that the benefit of the thing so that they're making an educated decision. Because most people say, I don't want it before they've even heard it because they go, oh, selling's about to happen. So I'm going to go into a pattern where I just switch off. I'm not going to listen, even though it matters. If your friend's going to fail their exam and you say, hey, you should, you should probably study. And they go, no, nah, I'm not going to listen to you. They're going to fail and they're going to suffer and struggle. Like you're going to try something else to try and get them to study because the consequence of not, you might push a little bit. I'm not necessarily going to, you know, shove it down their throat because people can make their own choices. But I think that when we realize that, hey, I can actually impact people, then I have a duty to go and get that message out there. That's marketing. And then convince people to do it. That's selling. And we struggle with it because we just want to believe, I think, that people, I think a lot of people want to believe that people will make the right choice, but they don't. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many health problems that are lifestyle related. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was thinking about that, how it seems, I know that's just my thoughts about it, that it's so easy to sell people things that they don't need or, oh, this will help you, but we all know it doesn't work. The science is not there. But then when you have something actually beneficial, it's like, it's like objections are everywhere. <laughs> Excuse me. A lot of it has to do with our own limiting beliefs about something like fear of rejection is a big one as to why we don't sell. Because if it's not my thing, then I can sell you on it because I'm detached from the outcome. If it's my thing that I've created, my method, I'm the coach, we're attached to the outcome. If you say no, you're saying no to me. That means that I'm not good. So we just like deflect and not put ourselves in that position, risking that person's going to tell us no because it's going to affect our ego. So we just don't sell because then if they say no, if they don't say yes to it, but I wasn't attached to it, then I'm not going to going to get affected. It's, you'd had friends like this, potentially I did, where they didn't study for an exam because they didn't want to sit the exam and fail and have studied for it. Because if they fail and they didn't study, it's like, well, hey, I didn't study for this. It's like, yeah, you're an idiot. Why didn't you study for it? Because <laughs> they didn't want to fail and have put effort in because then they are a failure. So we, we fear failure. We also fear success. What happens if I start selling and I blow up, I'm running a seven-figure business and all my friends are broke and have limiting beliefs and I'm crushing it. What does that say about me? What does it say about them? What if I've always, a really good one for me was like with anxiety, people would, this sounds super counterintuitive, they would not do the things that would change them because they've always had anxiety. That's their life. That's their story. Right. So if I'm to just change it in six weeks, what does that say about them? for the last 15 years, that they maybe have not been doing the right steps that would resolve the thing. And so there's some responsibility there. You know, what if I had have done this earlier? What if I had have done it, you know, better, harder, found someone else? 
I've been trying all these things and they never worked. And now you're just going to show me this magic way. Am I stupid because I didn't know this? There's a lot of that sort of stuff that goes on. On the flip side, uh, sometimes our story is our story. And so we don't want to change it because then who are we? What am I going to complain about in my life if nothing's bad? Right. My friends all like to complain. If I'm really good, I can't participate in the conversation because I'm not a loser anymore. Let's say I've got my shit together, excuse my language, or I've solved my anxiety. All my friends are anxious, but I'm over here chilling, loving life. Like I can't hang out with them anymore. Maybe they won't accept me. There's all this weird stuff that goes on. And so a lot of those things affect that, that process. And I think that someone who's really good at selling, so to speak, can navigate that effectively and empower the person to realize the benefits of change. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the old version of them is dead and it's bad. And yeah, go down a rabbit hole there. But I notice that a lot with chronic pain and anxiety. I know people where I would say to them, hey, look, we're just going to do these things and this will all change. And they didn't do it. And so I had to drag the process out, make it feel way harder and make them feel way more accomplished because it was like I had to validate their suffering for them to be able to actually go and change. Otherwise, I was invalidating them as a person for having not figured this out themselves. So I don't talk about big results anymore when we're in our sales process because it's unrealistic for most people and it actually turns them off. If I'm talking to somebody who's doing five grand a month and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is Stacy. She's doing seven figures now. She started at three grand a month and now she's doing seven figures. Like the person I'm talking to can't see themselves do that. And so they just switch off, even though it is possible because I've done it. They can't see them. So instead, I give examples that are more close to home, that are relatable, that are in their view of the world so that, that their brain doesn't switch off to that possibility because it's like leaving breadcrumbs and getting them to follow it. It's the same thing with the people who had anxiety in our clinic. It was like, if I was like, oh yeah, six weeks, it'll be you'll be like 80% better. They're they're like, but I've had this for 20 years. I've gone to doctors, blah, blah, blah. So instead, I just started saying, look, in six weeks, what I'm expecting is that you'll have a little bit of reduced anxiety. You'll probably start feeling a little bit better. And they'll say, oh, that'd be amazing. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, basically most of this is going to be gone. But I can't say that because they can't buy into it because their story of the world is that it's tough. It's blind. Does that make sense? Uh, Yes. That's amazing. I've never thought about that, but that that makes perfect sense. That's a really... Mm -hmm helpful piece of information, actually. I mean, and and I do have clients all the time. That's exactly what they say. And not only can they not imagine it, but it's scary. Who would I be if I'm not, you know, if I'm not worried about, if I don't have anxiety or if I'm not beating myself up all the time about my weight or something, for example, like then what would I think about? It's, it was really weird is most of success is just our ability to to accept that we're successful or to just to just stop thinking about it. For example, like I to give context to anybody listening and thinking, James, you don't know what you're talking about. I had severe generalized anxiety where I had panic attacks, absolute terror at nighttime, couldn't walk down the street. Like it was bad. And looking at now, I have no anxiety. I can public speak. I can do whatever. The main difference between me now and me then is how much attention, emotion, focus I put on the feeling that I have when doing the thing. So if I'm about to public speak, I still go, oh, I'm going to be doing some, like talking to you. Oh, I'm going to be doing something. I don't know how it's going to go. There's variables here that I can't control. I have to be on point. What if my video stops working? What if you ask me a question I can't answer? Like that's life. But me now looks and goes, oh, that might be fun. Or me now goes, I feel it for a second. And then it just disappears into the ether and is then gone because I'm not focusing on it. And anxious James would feel it and then go, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, of that, then this, and it just explodes, right? That's anxiety. It's unproductive anxiousness. If I hear a noise outside and I'm alone with 
my kids and the noise sounds like a person, anxiousness is productive. I might have to defend my kids. You know what I mean? If I'm with a bunch of friends and we hear a noise outside and it sounds like a person, there shouldn't be the same level of anxiousness because I'm with a group of friends. So I'm not now not defending my kids, saving their lives, which is plausible. I'm with a bunch of adult males. I'm probably going to be all good. Or if I just hear the wind blow and I assume that it's an intruder, like that's non-productive. I'm anxious about that. I'm freaking out all night, even though I can, I've got security cameras and I can see there's no people there. Like that's anxiousness. And so when, or anxiety. So when I'm looking at like the feeling I have, my ability to disconnect from it before it starts to extrapolate is the key variable. And I think that, like you said, with clients of like who I am and, and who am I going to become and what am I going to be like if I stop beating myself up about my weight? The irony is you can just stop like literally right now. I'm not anxious about is my t-shirt perfectly positioned, but old James would be freaking out. You know, what if someone judges this and looks weird? Now I don't care because I've detached from that and I'm just being me. And that's literally a choice. It doesn't feel like a choice but it ultimately is because I can choose to focus on whatever I want. I'm looking at my screen. Now I'm looking at my light. Now I'm looking at my blinds. Like I'm choosing where I want to focus, but it feels like we can't. And so everything that that I do with the coaching space is like coach that person to realize that actually it's a choice and I can let go and that my life doesn't have to change. Well, my life's going to change, but who I am doesn't have to change, so to speak. I'm not, it's not this fantasy land. It's like actually just literally I'm going to make a switch and then I'm just not going to feel shit anymore. And then from there, I can go and do whatever I want to do and I can feel good. And so it's so easy, but people create such a story that makes it feel so hard because it has to be hard. Like if it's not hard, then why haven't I figured it out? What's the saying? You probably know this one in the States, right? If it was that easy, can you everyone would do it. (laughs) Everyone would do it. The irony is it is that easy, but they're not because they all believe that it's not that easy. We just bought a couple investment properties and people are saying to me, like, how'd you do that? I'm like, well, you know, I had some money and I went to the bank and they gave me more money. And then I bought a house where the rent was more than the mortgage payments. So it cost me nothing. And because the property market goes up about 10% every year, I have half a deposit for another one. Now I had enough to buy two houses. So now every year my houses give me another deposit to buy another house. So now I have three. And they're like, I don't, I don't get it. I'm like, what do you mean? Houses go up in value. And they're like, yeah, but how do you get the money? I'm like, because I go to the bank and I'm like, yo, my house is worth more money. Can you give me a loan? And they say, yeah. And then I buy a house where the rent pays the mortgage. So it costs me nothing. It's the basic concept of buying, buy and hold properties. I add value, get that value and then buy more. But if it was that easy, James, as my mother would say, or my grandparents would say, they never want to do it. I'm like, yeah, but it is that easy. And they're not, it doesn't seem easy to you because you don't know. Like I can walk toddlers and babies would say, dad, if it was that easy, then everyone would just walk. And I'm like, son, everybody does walk. Most people walk. You will too. Just learn how to walk. Like, I think that's the thing. I think that it really needs a change to like, if it was that easy, oh, it is just find somebody who's doing what I want to do and then go and learn from them. And so I, for the biggest thing that switched for my success was that exact concept. I'm going to go find somebody who knows some stuff about the thing that I want to do. And I'm just going to throw money at them and get it and then go and use it. But anxiety, like it's, we're all coaches, we're all practitioners. We know how to fix it. It is that easy. We might not say it. I'll rephrase. It might be some work. Going to the gym and looking like Arnold is easy or a simple rephrase. It's simple. Just go to the gym a couple of times a day, 
for the next 15 years and you'll probably look pretty good. Get fit, lose weight, become positive, be consistent at the thing that's producing result and you'll get there. It's not easy necessarily because it requires work, but it's simple. That's maybe the difference. Yeah, let's change that. And let's say it is, it's simple, but isn't always easy. And the ease is just because you have to be consistent. What do you say? I, I want to be fit. What do I got to do? I gotta, you got to go run. Yeah. And then what do I do next? Then you're going to rest and then you're going to go run the next day. What do I do after that? Just going to keep running every day for the next six months and you'll probably be fit. And you go, it's, is that simple? It's that simple. Just keep running and you'll be fit. But that's hard. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you wanted to be fit. Yeah, but oh, that, that sucks. I'm like, well, what do you want? Which sucks more, having going through the pain to get what you want or not having what you want? And we all get to choose. And, and that makes sense. It seems like it, it is easy. But when you think about, okay, I feel the anxiety, I give into it, I engage. That's the only thing for you that's easier than just not because that's what you've always done, really. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the only difference there that would make that easier is that's what you're used to doing. So it's easier through just practice. I guess. The, the, the difficulty is making the decision to do something different. That's it. Like, for example, let's say me and my wife don't get along, right? I get a bad marriage. There are, and I believe that it's her because it's never us. It's always the other person. Interestingly, if I'm late to a meeting, it's because the economy, the president, the bus, there's all these external reasons why. When you're late, oh no, you just got up too late. You're lazy. You didn't set an alarm properly. It's you. But when it's me, it's not, it's not me. It's everything else. So when it's a bad marriage, it's yeah, my wife. So, okay, what if I took responsibility and said, let's change the headspace and go, okay, it's me. My life is a consequence of my actions, my thoughts, my beliefs. And if I take 100% responsibility, no matter what, no matter, no matter how much they're abusing me and genuinely are a bad person, it is genuinely them. My suffering is optional. I'm going to accept that it's me and I'm going to make different choices because of that and take different actions. Could I change my outcomes? Could I change the feeling in my life? Of course I can. People do that every day. They, they leave their country in a container ship and have horrible suffering to get to a better situation because they took responsibility and said, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. People in abusive relationships decide finally that I'm going to change. People who stay in abusive relationships don't want to get too deep into this. There's an, an aspect of I'm choosing to stay. It might not feel like you're choosing, but you are because you could literally just use your legs and walk in a different direction. What's keeping you there is an emotional attachment to it. Something is serving you. Something's making you feel a certain way. That's why you do it. Like I don't burn my hand on the stove because it sucks and there's no benefit to me unless it's some kind of self-inflicting self-harm thing that reinforces creates a different feeling in me and i get a positive kick like we only do things because they give us something as sick as that is ultimately otherwise we wouldn't do it there's a lot of things we don't do um, and i think that i think the sooner we accept that we're always doing things for a reason and that reason might seem twisted to somebody else but it's completely rational in our head like i would sleep with a knife next to me made sense someone breaks in got to defend myself that's true. If someone does break in, I might be helpful. The problem is that the chances of someone breaking in are astronomically low. And what that's doing is perpetuating my anxiety because I'm justifying that this is possibly going to happen. And if I believe that it's possibly going to happen, hence why I've got the knife next to me, it's fueling the anxiety, which makes me have the knife, which makes me feel more anxious. And so there's this cycle. It's like having, maybe I shouldn't talk about this in American but it's like having guns. Like we don't have them in New Zealand. We don't have guns. Police don't even have guns. And there's this like 
defense thing. If I have the weapon, then I'm going to be safe. And because I feel anxious, I'm not going to be safe. So I better have the weapon. And then I have the weapon and I go up and I, I shoot my spouse in the nighttime because I think it's an intruder. You know, my kid gets it. Like there's these crazy cycles that we create and we do it with our heads. We do it with our businesses to circle back. We, our business is not where we want it to be. And so we try a bunch of random crap and nothing's working. And then we believe that this is not for me and, and we're all anxious and we're not achieving success. And, and we have a choice though. In a moment, we have a choice to say, I'm going to shift my perspective. I'm going to make a different decision. I'm going to think about this differently. And kind of that's my, to, to circle around, that's my point is like, in a moment, you can choose to take a different action, to think about a different perspective and possibly change the outcome. And that's ultimately the control that we have, even though we feel like we don't have control. I would sometimes feel like I have absolutely no control. My anxiety must be genetic, which doesn't make sense, but it must be genetic. It must be this, must be that. Whereas right in front of me is the easy choice to go, what if it isn't? And what if I take radical responsibility, as Tony Robbins talks about, for my situation? Even if there are things that are out of my control, even if thing, bad things have happened to me, I make a decision. I'm now not going to suffer because of this. There's this guy, Nick Santoski. He's got no legs and no arms. He's got one arm and a finger. The dude's, a, the dude's amazing. He talks on Tony Robbins' stage and he's, he's charismatic and he's got a beautiful partner. He goes to the gym. His businesses are good. Like, dude's crushing it. He's got no legs. He's got one arm because he made a decision at a point. I'm going to look at my situation differently. I'm going to take different action. And he eliminated this imaginary thing that was in front of him. And they bring him on and Tony Robbins talking sometimes because it's, you think your life's hard, this person, blah, blah, blah. And they bring him out and you're like, oh shit, yeah, my life isn't that hard. Look at this dude. And he's achieving <laughs> right. more. He's feeling, feeling better than I am. And he's got no arms and legs, but I'm fully functional and sad about my situation. Who's doing that? I'm doing that to me. And I can make a choice to, it might not be like, I'm going to choose tomorrow and therefore it's gone. I'm not saying that. But if I'm unhappy with my body, if I'm unhappy with my money, my relationship, what if I made a choice to do something slightly differently? And over time, it progresses and we get to where we want to be. I don't know how I got down this tangent, by the way. <laughs> no, I, that I've, I'm actually working with a client through this kind of stuff right now. You know, that as long as you believe that you're stuck, you don't have a choice, then that's all you're going to see anyways. So you're just, your brain's just going to keep confirming that for you. And so that you feel stuck. Yeah. So it's really important to work on that thought and see that you do have a choice. And I also like when you tied it into understanding that you have reasons. Because a lot of times I, I feel like it's easier for us, even though it hurts, we go to, there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Why would I be this way? And, and not like in a curious way, like actually digging into, there's got to be a reason. I'm getting something here. But just in a, oh, there's something wrong with me. And that's why. And, mm. and I think that holds people back because if there's just something wrong with you, then there's just something wrong with you. You're going to well, keep making that choice. how validating is that? That's the irony. This is what I struggle with in healthcare. Diagnosis. A diagnosis, I don't think, should be told to a client. Should be it shouldn't be told to a patient. It should be an internal thing that's a way of categorizing the person's symptoms and likely progression, prognosis, treatment. But saying, okay, you have anxiety. Oh, you have panic. Oh, this is really good. You have panic attack disorder or panic disorder or whatever. And you go, ah, makes sense. That's what I've got. I've got panic disorder. So no, yeah. You know why you have that? Why? Because you keep panicking. Okay. <laughs> That's why it's called panic disorder because you keep panicking. It's like saying I'm overweight. What, what's wrong with me? You are overweight. Ah, oh, see, I'm overweight because I'm overweight because I've got overweightness. That makes no sense. 
but we do it with healthcare all the time. And a person goes, okay, that's what I am. It's like kids. It's, it's like kids. They go, oh, this kid ADHD or they've got, they're on the spectrum, right? What does that immediately make you do? Act different with them. Well, I got to be my kid's spectrum. He's just like that. And uh, we just got to let him do his thing. No, you are enabling certain behaviors and justifying things to yourself and to your child and setting them up to struggle even more because you have labeled them in your head and therefore perpetuating certain behaviors that just because their spectrum doesn't mean that that's the case. Just because your kid is apparently ADHD, whatever that means, now you act differently with them. They did a study with that. They gave teachers a group of kids, two groups of kids, and they said one group of kids were the naughty kids, the ones who were the failures, so to speak. And they gave that to one group and, and they told the teacher that this is the, the most promising group of kids. They tested extremely well. You know what I mean? Uh, like all kids, they've got some things they need to work on, but this is the group that is expected to do very well. And they gave another group of kids to a teacher who were actually good students. And then they said that these are the, the troublesome kids and they test well sometimes. You know, overall, we're not, they're not looking promising. And then they just left them and they did some tests and things like that. The group where the teacher felt that they were the best students did better than the other group. Why? Because the teacher put in more flippant effort. The teacher was soft with them and worked with them and guided them. We've all had bad teachers. And, and what is a bad teacher? A teacher that just doesn't care, doesn't show up, doesn't connect with us, doesn't help us learn. And as parents, as, as educators, as coaches, like beliefs are so important as to how we take action. And saying like back to your point, saying, oh, I'm this, therefore it's genetic. Like it's probably not genetic. Genetic is the answer that your doctor gives you when they don't really know, or they just want you to shut up. Oh, it's probably genetic. Your back pain, oh, it's probably genetic. Really? Yeah, well, your dad's got it and you have it. That's true. My dad does have back pain and, and I have back pain. Even my grandfather had back pain. It must be <laughs> genetic. Or you're all plumbers and spend 12 hours a day under a house, which would probably mess up anybody's back. So is it genetic or is it that you're all plumbers? And why are you all plumbers? Is that because it's genetic that you're all plumbers? No, it's because <laughs> if granddad's a plumber, dad's likely to be a plumber statistically. And if dad's a plumber and granddad's a plumber, chances are we all talk about plumbing and me, the son, I want to be a plumber. I'm not going to be a dancer. If no one in my family dances, like that's not very likely. I could. Chances are I'm going to be a plumber. So we will have back pain because of plumbing, not because it's genetic. But the easy answer is to say it's genetic because then that detaches me from any possible, you know, ability to fix it. Because if it's genetic, then I don't have to fix it and I just have to suffer with it. And that becomes my story and it justifies my existence. And I can keep drinking, smoking, not exercising, not looking after myself and suffering because I made a decision that it's genetic. Even though I have not done a genetic test, I don't know what plumbing related gene there is for back pain. Like it's just, it's, but that's it. I've decided. And that's what's super weird is especially with things that are intangible, mental health disorders, et cetera. We like to just say that they're genetic or there's an aspect of genes. The moment you say to someone there's an aspect of genes, like they just detach from the fact that 99% of it is not genetic, but it could be because it's in my genes. Yeah, but are you taking any action towards changing it? I tried everything, really, really. You tried absolutely everything. I tried two things and I didn't do them. I didn't put much effort into them. But why would I? It's genetic. That's what gets weird. Right. Yeah. Frustrates me. <laughs> <laughs> it is frustrating. And, and it's very true. As soon as you set that up, like you said, even if it was genetic, if you think that and don't make any, so now you're like, okay, I don't have to, I'm not going to take any action. Then it, those genes will definitely express for you because you took no action. Yeah. Like I have the, 
I'll give you a personal example. My health insurance, uh, my life insurance that I was getting set up is wanting to exclude any sleep-related thing in the future or like mental health-related thing because I have the gene for narcolepsy, but I don't have narcolepsy. And something like 30% of white people have the gene and like 80 or 90%, don't quote me on this, like 80 or 90% of people who have the gene don't have narcolepsy. So the chances are that I'm not going to have narcolepsy, especially considering I've seen a specialist and don't have narcolepsy and they just incidentally found the gene. But my health insurance provider wants to exclude that because oh, it's genetic, so you could have it. And I think this is, well, that's insurance companies just not wanting to pay money for stuff. But it, it, it's, it comes back to what I said, where people just make a decision like that's it, therefore. Whether that gene expresses or not is super relative to how I act in my life. Like I could have the more likely to have heart disease gene, but if I eat healthy, I'm probably not going to get heart disease. Whereas I might have heart disease or be overweight or whatever and be like, well, it's genetic. And it's like, no, no, it's because you eat like shit. You're horrible <laughs> and you don't exercise. That's why you're like that. It's like, no, no, it's not. It's genetic. I've tried everything. It's like, have you? Have you really? Like, I don't want to get into that necessarily because yeah, there's lots of things, but I feel like if we just, if you just didn't eat three weeks, and lived in the bush, like you, you'd pro- your, your body type would probably shift. What, what does that tell us? It's a bit extreme. I don't suggest that, but what does it tell us? It tells us that we actually have way more control than we're willing to accept. And that's the problem. Weight loss is a touchy subject. Mental health is a touchy subject. You don't want to say to someone like, hey, you've got anxiety. Like you can change that. I can't because I've been like this forever. It's genetic. That's tough to be like, you know what? No, it's not. You are literally enabling yourself to have it because when you're asleep, you don't have anxiety. Why? Because it's part of your consciousness you are creating anxiety by what you focus on what you tell yourself and what you don't do in terms of managing your physical state your heart rate's going up that makes you anxious therefore you because your brain says why am i why is my heart rate going up must be because i've left the stove on and my house is going to catch fire and then my entire family's going to die then i'm going to be alone and then i'm going to get depressed and i'm going to kill myself and you're like what yeah that's what's going to happen because my heart rate's gone up like that's ridiculous, but that's anxiety. Right. It's, it's purely a, a manifestation of your consciousness, right? Because if someone's actually breaking in to kill me, that's not anxiety. That's just survival. That's fight or flight. Non-productive anxiousness is what we class as anxiety. But I think that those are touchy subjects that you don't necessarily want to say that to. But like business, anything else that we want in our lives, we've got a choice, you know? I can choose to continue to struggle or I can choose to figure out someone else who's done it or is doing it and then go, what? If they can do it, what if I believe that if they can do it, I can do it instead of what did we say before? If it was that easy, everyone would do it. Maybe that's just a way of justifying why 99% of people don't achieve what they want in their lives. Because if the majority don't have it, therefore the minority must have stolen it from us have some special secret that they don't want to share with us. That's why there's all these conspiracies about rich people because they must know some stuff. That's why they have it and we don't. It's like, yeah, they do know some stuff. They know to find other successful people and ask them questions. They know to read books. They know to watch videos. They know to, to think differently. That's why the 1% has more, not because they stole it. I haven't stolen anything. I created value. I exchanged that value for currency. And I started that first by deciding that I don't want to be anxious anymore because it sucks. And so I watched videos and started doing some of the stuff that I saw. Like you have videos on your social media, I presume. How many people yeah. watch those and don't do anything about it? And you're frustrated because you're like, man, I make these, these videos. This is good stuff. 
Why aren't people doing it? If they just did it, a lot of people would be not a lack of information. My coach said to me, James, if it was, if all we needed was information, which tends to that coaching point, right? If all we needed was information, then we'd all be billionaires with six packs. It's very easy to get a six pack. It's very simple, I should say, to get a six pack. Watch some videos. Stop eating. What did I have the other day at a party? Doritos. Stop eating Doritos and drinking soda and just start doing crunches every night instead. Whenever you want to have a soda, just do crunches instead. And you'll probably end up having a six pack. But it's hard because you've got to decide not to eat Doritos and drink Coke. That's hard. All my friends are doing it. Feels nice. Relaxes me. Just don't do it. That's what's hard. Don't do the stuff you've always done. And be okay with detaching from friends that don't enable your success. And realize that your life's going to be different. You can't continue to eat cake and look good in a bikini at whatever way you decide because we can all look good in different ways, etc. But for my point that I'm making here, it's you've got to, that's what's hard is sticking to something. Don't eat cake for the forever. <laughs> You'll probably look a little better. You go to the gym every day forever. What do you mean? I've got to go forever? I can never have my grandfather. No, my father-in-law says to me, he goes, I don't drink alcohol. And he says, James, so you're never going to have a drink? I'm like, no. And he goes, oh, what about at Christmas? So I'm like, is it alcohol? And he's like, yeah. I was like, then no. And so you're saying like forever, you're never going to have a drink? I was like, no. <laughs> what, what don't you understand? I also don't eat meat. He's like, yeah, you're never going to have chicken? I was like, no. <laughs> I'm not going to have death in my food. And he's like, why? I was like, because I don't want to. And he goes, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. And I was like, sure, there's nothing wrong with it. Keep telling yourself that. Keep drinking alcohol. That's cool. That's up to you. If that's your story, then that's your story. My story changed. It's not a judgment. My story just changed because I didn't want it. I didn't need it to have fun. I didn't need it to relax and talk in social situations. And I thought if it's technically a poison, that's why it messes our, our brain and our bodies. What if I just stopped having it? How would I feel? And for me, it's less about, to, to my point of like making decisions, right? Like it's less about not having alcohol and more about sticking to something. I get more fulfillment from sticking to not having alcohol, despite the pressure, despite my brain going, ah, oh, that'd be fun have a beer. That'd be nice, taste nice, some whiskey or whatever. The mere fact of sticking to not doing it is now where I get enjoyment from because I'm still doing it. It's like working on my business. I got enough money. I can retire. Why do I keep doing it? Because I want to keep getting up at 4 a.m. and learning more and progressing and growing. Otherwise, what's the other choice? Just start drinking and doing nothing all day. That's not what I want. So yeah, it's all, it's all about our choices, right? It's interesting. I think that's hard for people. Like, how do you find that with your clients where it's like this person's not making a choice to do the thing? Like you see it as a choice, right? Like they're choosing to believe this, think this, act this way or not act this way, but they don't see it as a choice. They see it as like the only way. What do you do in that situation for yourself with clients? That's, you have to help them pull that belief apart. That's the only way and change that to a new thought. <laughs> That's the process. Because yeah, because as long as they have that belief and they stick to it, then nothing is nothing's going to change if nothing changes. <laughs> That's the irony. But then they're still there paying you money. It's weird. People will uh, do some odd things. There's no there's nothing I can do. Then why are you seeing me? You know, I don't know, but I'm going to keep doing it. So you're going to keep making choices to be here but then not the choice to actually follow through completely. And there's this weird enablement because then what, what's going to happen is they're going to say, I tried, I paid this person all this money, I, I tried. And it's really to, because I made the choice that, here, let's go deep for a second. They've made the choice that there's nothing that can be done. To make that valid, 
to prove it because people will question them. They'll say, well, have you done everything? That question is going to come up. So for me to be like, there's nothing I can be, that can be done. Therefore, I must have tried everything. Therefore, I have to go and half-ass a bunch of stuff to validate the belief that I've tried everything, to validate the belief that there's nothing that can be done so that I don't have to do anything and can stay where I am. Because ultimately, my decision is I just want to stay where I am. And I think that if more people just said, you know what? I am okay with being depressed, anxious, unhappy, not have any money. And that for me is my success. I'm happy with that. I think more people would be more happy. Like Gary Vee talks about this, right? He's, if you want it, work for it. If you don't want it, then stop complaining. Like I, you can't complain, but then not do the work. Pick one, <laughs> do the work or don't do the work. And then just be happy. Don't complain you don't have what you want when you're just watching Netflix all night. Just accept that, you know what? I prefer to watch Netflix. Then go after whatever dream that somebody else gave me. If you want a Lamborghini, then go and work really hard and go and buy a Lamborghini. If you are complaining that you don't have a Lamborghini, but you're watching Netflix all the, all the time, then either go and do the work or just accept that you don't really want a Lamborghini. Exactly. I'm trying everything to lose weight, but I'm not. Maybe just accept that, you know what? I don't actually care and be happy. Go, you know what? I don't actually care. I don't want to. I want to keep eating Doritos. I love it. I'd be like, amazing. More power to you. I think the bullshit is when we say we want things and then we say with the audacity to say that I've tried everything. So no, you haven't. You have not. That kind of ties into something that, that comes up a lot with the people I work with because a lot of them are perfectionists and they have all or nothing thinking. And so it's, if they're like, I hate my job, I'm going to quit. And like, let's figure out your thoughts there, why you hate your job so that you don't hate that next job. Let's do that. And I, I will hear this. Well, but if I stop hating this job, I might stay. Well, you're there. You're, you are staying. You're not, you're just talking about how much you hate it and how you're going to quit. And you've been talking about it. So you're saying the alternative of being there and not hating it is worse somehow. <laughs> yeah, because that's their story. They want that. That's <laughs> what they talk about when they hang out with their friends is how much my job sucks. I've right. been like that. They've, they've changed jobs like multiple times. And I'm like, the common denominator is you, not your bosses. There's no way that five of your bosses have been a problem. <laughs> There's just no way. Unless you have pathologically chosen bad bosses like abusive relationships you keep bouncing from there's no good men there's no good women so maybe you're just choosing the bad ones because it's enabling your story that there are no good ones right if there are no good this the cliche is there's no good men let's just do it the other way to be pc there's no good women right maybe you're just hanging out at the wrong places if you keep meeting women in bars and then saying there's no good woman maybe you should not go to bars to meet women or maybe you should think about it differently because you're probably choosing characteristics. They all look the same. They're all five foot eight, blonde, this, this, this. What if you went with a brunette instead? Sounds weird, but you've clearly got a pattern of choosing a certain kind of woman to perpetuate your story that's good. And, I, and it's the same thing, like perfection, perfectionist, that's a diagnosis, right? That's a categorization. If I am a perfectionist, that enables the story that and justifies the feeling of, that of control that ultimately I crave, which is why I'm being a perfectionist. Perfectionism also prevents you from getting hurt because you never complete anything. And because nothing's ever completed, it never goes out into the world emotionally or literally. And so therefore I'm never going to feel judgment because I can always say, well, it wasn't perfect. 
That's why I'm not happy with it. So therefore, if it fails, it's not on you. It's on the fact that it wasn't perfect. See what I'm saying? If I'm a painter and I'm a perfectionist, I've labeled myself as somebody who must have things perfect. What's that giving me? That's giving me control and certainty because then if I release a painting and people judge it, I can say, well, yeah, I just wasn't happy with it. You know, it wasn't perfect. Why? To emotionally protect myself from the potential that somebody's not going to like my thing. So I think that perfectionism is bullshit. I think it's not real. And I think that we use it as an excuse to prevent us from just doing stuff because I never have to release this thing. I never have to like, there's a, there's always, if your perfectionist is always a reason why you can't, you're creating control, you're creating problems. You're probably creating problems because it, again, it's a story. And if your story is that the women are all bad, then you know, the next one you choose will be bad. And see, I told you, and then you can complain to your friends about how bad all the women are because they all complain about the woman. It's weird. It's a cycle, right? Because like your person, they don't want to leave it. They don't want to stop hating their job. Why? Because then I'll like my job. Then I'll stay there. And you go, so wrong with liking your job. Do you want to like your job or do you want to leave? I want to leave. Okay, so I leave my job. I'm unhappy again because this job's bad too. Okay, <laughs> what if you just started liking your job and then you wouldn't have the story? But then what are you going to complain about, complain about on a Friday night over beers? It's, um, right. Maybe it starts with getting better friends so you don't have to feel like you have to perpetually complain to them because that person will never change. I know you probably know this, but that person will never change until they change their environment because if their friends are like that, if their family's like that, then they're always being fed that narrative that that's how life needs to be. And you can't be like, I've felt this, right? You can't be the only friend at a party who's just crushing. Everyone's <laughs> like, oh, complaining about stuff. What about you? What about you, James? What's been hard in your life? I'm like, hard in my life? My life is great. I'm ridiculously successful. I'm ridiculously happy. My relationships are amazing. I look good. Ah, you're just arrogant. What do you mean? You're arrogant saying that everything's so good. But what do you consider to be good? A million dollars? Yeah, well, I got a million dollars. Ah, you're so arrogant. You think you're better than everybody else because you're rich? No, no, you, you are. I asked you what you thought was successful and I to told you that I have it. And now I'm arrogant, even though you want it as well. What? <laughs> it's the truth. It's anyway. That's absolutely true. It has to be a pretty big shift in your life to get everybody like in on a good story. Yeah, <laughs> Ch yeah, you, changing the story. Got to change change your friends. Well, like if I'm hanging out with millionaires and I'm not a millionaire, I'm probably not going to be in that circle for very long because I can't keep up with the conversation. I keep oh, I'm in a mastermind group with some friends and there was a guy in there, a uh, nice guy, nice person, but wasn't competing at our level in business. And eventually he just decided to quit the group. And I'm like, man, he, he quit the group. That's deep because he couldn't keep up with us. And he had a choice, step up or step out. He could have stepped up, hustled, asked us more questions, had more financial or business success, but he chose to step out to save the ego in, in his mind from feeling hurt, feeling unaccomplished. So what's he probably gone and done? Lowered the level of expectation, hung out with people who match that level to give him validation for where he is. Instead of going, what if I need to step up? So if it's like, if I want to be more fit and strong, so hang out with fit and strong people. Be the, be the least fit, least strong person in the group. If I want to be happy, hang out with happy people and be the saddest person in the group. I'm really happy. <laughs> but if I want to be extra happy, go and be the saddest person in the room, proportionally. Like, I thought I was happy, but like, these guys are happy. I've got a choice. Step up and be happier to maintain my social circle, step out 
and go and find more sad people to hang out with to feel better about myself. And I think that it sounds rough, and I know people are going to judge this, but think about what I'm saying and the emotional context to that. And I think that when we do that, we have power because we realize that we can influence our lives a hell of a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. And we can achieve a lot more because we're willing to look at things differently and, and fight the little voice inside that says, James, you don't understand because it's genetic. And it's cool. It is. But suffering's optional. That dude, Nick, born with no legs. You're complaining in your life. Nick's got no legs. He's got one finger on an arm and he's doing heaps of stuff, loving life. And you're complaining about your feet are slightly bigger than your friend's ones and you can't buy the nice small shoes or whatever. He's got no feet. And I think, I think that's the thing, right? Like suffering, pain, pain's life, but suffering's optional. Plenty right. Of suffer even though it's not actually that bad objectively compared to a lot of people because we choose to suffer. And that, that's an important point to get to, to realize that it is actually a choice. And if you don't know how to change it, if you don't know how to choose differently, maybe try a coach. <laughs> exactly. Boom. Good segue. Good Lisa. <laughs> so then who is it? Plug your let's let's plug James here. Who is it that you help and how can they find you and or anybody listening that wants more? How can they connect with you? If you Google my name, you'll find a bunch of stuff. But that's one way. Basically, <laughs> I help health professionals to, to grow their businesses. I want them to be able to make more money and have more success and help more people. And I think that the more people who have more resources, the more good that can be done. And that's fundamentally what we do is it doesn't matter whether you're a health coach or a trainer or a chiropractor or a functional medicine specialist, uh, we can show you how to level up your marketing, your sales, your business processes uh, with our plug and play system that we've refined over a few hundred clients in dozens of industries and help you to bring in more patients and bring in more profit. But yeah, if you just Google my name or go to patientsandprofit.com, you'll be able to find more info about me. Amazing. And thank you so much for sharing today. I This is probably one of my longer interviews, but I was just like, you were blowing my mind and I'm a coach. And so I was still like learning and amazed by it. I'm going to listen to this episode again myself. So thank you for sharing the insight with us today. No, I, I appreciate you. And we did run over time. I apologize, but oh. I was having fun. I assumed you'd interrupt me if it was not good. I appreciate you. I hope everyone had fun listening to this. And I think that, that the most I can take from this is you've got to listen to more people who talk about stuff that challenges you because that's the only way to learn. Lifting weights, if, if it's easy, then you're not lifting heavy enough. And it's the same thing with whatever you're doing. There's, there has to be this difficulty in processing it because that maybe means that it's challenging you. And, and, and that's a good way to to live i think and and i appreciate you for letting me on the show and i had heaps of fun and, and everyone needs to subscribe this is good thank you and that was that was an excellent closer as well if some of the ideas presented today were challenging look into that why is it challenging is there something there that you're struggling with that you want to do differently and now you're seeing that you can so i loved it thank you for your time and for those of you who it resonated with please reach out google james and to learn more and get out there and live more vibrantly.